a nightmare occurred at the University of Maryland in 2018 when freshman football player Jordan McNair died of heat stroke after an off-season practice. The confluence of events caused this nightmare scenario, a warm, humid day with a heat index over 90 degrees. Practice was suddenly relocated to another field because the designated practice area, the football stadium, was under construction. The workouts were started before the athletic trainers arrived on site and were fully set up, including cold water pools. And the strength coach running the practice did not recognize the signs of heat stroke that McNair was clearly demonstrating. Hi, I'm Karen Weaver. Welcome to the podcast. That same year, I authored an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun about what might have precipitated this pressure placed on coaches, athletes, and administrators, both financial and prestige. This situation can typify the unintended pressures that come as presidents and trustees try to move their institutions quickly up the ladder in college sports. The question all senior leaders should ask is, could something like this happen at my school? Today, my guests are two healthcare professionals who have seen college athletics from the inside, both as team medical professionals and now as administrators in the United States. Both represent the U.S. Council for Athletes Health, an organization dedicated to strengthening institutional education, consulting compliance with existing healthcare mandates, and support for the newly mandated athletics healthcare administrator now required under NCAA rules. Dr. Chad Asplund is a 20-year sports medicine practitioner at the professional, Olympic, collegiate, and recreational levels. He's the executive director of the U.S. Council for Athletes Health, as well as a sports medicine physician and professor of family medicine and orthopedics at the Medical College of Georgia. Chad, Chad currently serves as the medical director for USA Basketball and a team physician for USA Hockey and Georgia Southern University. He is also the past president of the American Medical Association for Sports Medicine, the largest physician-only organization for sports medicine physicians. Angie Beisner focused her career on the care and prevention of athletic injuries within collegiate organizations for more than two decades before bringing her extensive knowledge to the USCAH operations in June of 2021. Before joining the organization, she was most recently the head athletic trainer at Ohio State where she was also named the lead athletic trainer for the USA men's under 19 lacrosse team. Chad and Angie, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you all here today. Thanks for Thanks having us. Thanks The work that you're doing is, is so interesting and so important. And, and I would uh, downright say innovative and, and, and prescient because we're facing so many challenges right now with athletes' mental and physical health. Just tell me, uh, and maybe uh, Chad, you can start us off. What prompted you, Jim Borchers, Andy, Angie, some of the others, just to launch this idea? Well, you know, it started about five, five or six years ago with the idea that the NCAA keep, kept putting out best practices, um, which, you know, there's probably five or six best practice documents out there. And if you break them down, there's just a ton of things that institutions are expected to be doing um, to maintain the health and safety of athletes. When you look at a school the size of Ohio State with a tremendous amount of resources, both personnel and financial, um, that we were having difficulty kind of meeting all of these best practices. 
you know, how are, how are smaller schools or schools without the personnel or resources going to do it? And so that's really kind of what drove the development of the tools that we have to help institutions, you know, do the required educations, the policies and the procedures. But then it was also just really a passion to um, kind of evaluate programs and see what they're doing and where the, uh, where the gaps are. And then what we were really hoping for is to work with the institution to provide collaborative solutions to help them get to where they need to be. Angie, how about you? You know, I would say that one of the unique things about this organization is that we are um, working with individual institutions, but there really isn't a governing body to monitor health and safety on campuses. So the NCAA puts together recommendations, but they're not really considered enforceable rules. Um, they let each institution manage what's best for them on campus because healthcare is such a unique field, whether you have access right next door to a hospital system, you have to contract out, all those things are unique. There's not somebody that comes in that ensures best practices that are being followed. And a lot of times there's a lot of different influences that I'm sure we'll talk about later um, on these different institutions. And so I think for us, it's just a way for third party individuals to come and do a risk assessment to make some um, suggestions and improvements that don't know the politics on your campus, that don't know the individual personalities. We can just look at it as um, kind of an independent um, healthcare provider of what the best practices should be or could be at that institution. So that makes us a little unique, which is obviously with all of our experiences has, has made it um, you know, really interesting to go onto different campuses and try to assist the health and safety student athletes. So that, that's a great starting point. So let's start with uh, one idea each of you have about broader issues that presidents and trustees should have on their radar today. So um, Chad, why don't I start with you? Well, I think um, when you look at college athletics, it's probably the biggest area of risk um, that presidents will face on, a, on, the, on their campus. You know, when you look at the potential for, you know, injury, you know, the potential for, I mean, we've seen abuse and scandals within athletics, and that has huge financial risk, reputational risk, as well as, you know, damage to, you know, the very young people that, you know, these presidents and high-level administrators are charged with protecting. And so I think if presidents were aware of the level of risk that athletics brings, if they were aware that there are a myriad of best practices that have been put out by the NCAA that are supposed to safeguard athletes, that they could then be aware of what is supposed to be going on on the campus as far as protection of athletes, and then making sure that whether it's through them, through their legal uh, compliance or legal counsel area, or through the athletic director, that they have a firm grasp on, hey, we've got a culture of health and safety in our athletic department. These best practices are being followed. We are doing what we can do to proactively mitigate the risk that athletics brings to our campus. Angie, what about you? You've been on a number of campuses. What are you seeing that presidents should be paying attention to? I think it's much like what Chad said. I think there's just an assumption that, you know, if we look at it, if you're talking about athletics, you're assuming that these are young, healthy adults that, that present minimal risk um, to your institution. But in reality, as he said, it's one of your highest risk areas. And it's the area that's going to make the news if something goes wrong. And so I think it really is important to do your due diligence of not just 
taking the word beside you that the person that you're talking to, but have you walked into any of these medical facilities just to see what's available? Um, have, do you know who your athletic trainer is or um, maybe somebody in that sports medicine department that you could pick up the phone and have a conversation with and just ask questions because they'll be very honest with you. They're there just to protect the student athlete. There's lots of things that um, sports medicine staff that can do that can provide you some insight on where the area of risk might be for your particular institution. So I would just say, um, opening a dialogue because you don't know what you, you don't know. So it's kind of peeling back that layer, which is why, you know, you have kind of this um, education you're providing to, to presidents all over the place right now, because athletics tends to be very siloed. It tends to be an area that a lot of people don't understand. Um, but once you get into it, you realize where the risks are and then how, what can you do to minimize those risks or prevent some potential issues or concerns? Um, knowledge is power, as we always say, and I think that it's really important for them to engage specifically in this area um, of athletics. Sarah, yeah, I'd like to just yeah, add ahead, that real yep. quickly, but yeah. one, of the, one of the things that presidents can do to sort of get a snapshot of where they are is engage an independent third party in doing an external review, whether that's an online review or an in-person review, similar to presidents would be familiar with like SACS accreditation or a site visit where they've got to make sure that their academic standards are meeting, you know, what they're supposed to. They're similar. I mean, we provide that service for athletics to take a snapshot look at where you are with your athletic medicine infrastructure and where are the gaps. And then we can work, you know, with your institution to, to fill those gaps. Um, so we can kind of give you a snapshot of where your risk is and then how can you proactively work to mitigate, mitigate that risk. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So let, let's look back at a case study from about four years ago. Um, at the University of Maryland, a freshman football player, Jordan McNair, died of a heat stroke in an off-season practice. It was in May. The confluences of events caused a nightmare scenario, a warm, humid day with a heat index over 90 degrees. Practice was suddenly relocated to another field because the designated practice area, the football stadium, was under construction. The workouts were started before the ATCs arrived on site and were not fully set up, including cold water pools. And the coach running the practice did not recognize the signs of heat stroke that McNair was demonstrating. I shared in the liner notes a link to my op-ed in the Baltimore Sun about what may have precipitated this pressure placed on coaches, athletics, athletes, and administrators, both financially and in prestige. This situation to me typifies the unintended pressures that come as presidents and trustees try to move quickly up the ladder in college sports. Angie, let me start with you. What, what do you see about that and what recommendations might you have for presidents and trustees to consider? Well, I think it's a difficult situation. I think that um, this is a prime example of why um, medical staff need to report outside of an athletic department structure. So they feel they have the ability to make independent medical decisions. Um, I think the challenge is um, whether these people have, and I'm not talking specifically to Maryland, but everyone. So do these athletic, do these athletic medicine personnel, can they make independent medical decisions that are in the best interest for the student athlete without any kind of retribution from a coach or an athletic director in any way. And that needs to be the first thing that's examined. I think one of the um, concerns for me is that after this scenario happened, 
there are still many safety guards that were put in place or recommended by the NCAA to prevent this from happening again that are not being followed by institutions. And I think that's the troubling piece of this after story that enough presidents or risk managers or lawyers aren't really looking, okay, what changed on your campus after this? When you, you know better, you do better, what are we doing better? Where are we still deficient at? You know, do you have athletic directors that are assuming the risk um, by not providing the proper education because they think that the chance of this happening, do presidents know that athletic directors assume some risk when they, on their own, because they're cutting corners with what they want to require their coaches to do? Are all your coaches CPR certified, which is a basic standard? So I think those are some things that I think about when we talk about um, a scenario of a Jordan McNair, what did we learn from that that we're now applying now? And what are we still not applying? Have we just moved past that scenario? Or are we really gaining something? And some of the things that we're seeing right now is there's still many, many institutions on their campuses that are not moving forward any further than where we were with the Jordan McNair situation. Chad. Yeah, Karen, I mean, Jordan McNair was just one of many tragedies that have happened to uh, NCAA football players in the last 20 years. There have been 33 heat-related deaths in the last 20 years, but yet we don't seem to learn from them, as Angie had mentioned. You know, if you take a step back and you think about the aviation industry, you know, if you look at the Boeing 737 Supermax when they had that issue with the uh, autopilot coming on, um, or it was some electronic issue that was causing the planes to crash, they grounded the whole fleet. They really looked into what the underlying problem was. They corrected it before they allowed the fleet to then take off again. And we don't do that in sports. We don't take a look at, well, geez, in, in 2001, if you look at the NFL, Corey Stringer died. The NFL has not had another heat-related death since Corey Stringer because they have, one, the athletes have been able to bargain for certain protections the practice schedules have been adapted, you know, to do that. Professional athletes are motivated by, you know, performance and, and, and money to a certain extent where they're not subject to these rigorous punishment workouts that are put in place a lot of times by college strength and conditioning coaches. And so I think, you know, the best practices around heat injury are lined up to prevent something like this from happening again. But as Angie said, you know, most institutions, well, I'm sure most institutions are doing it right, but there are still many that are not doing it right. There are still many that aren't uh, checking the wet bulb globe temperature to see should they practice. Um, there are many athletic trainers that don't feel comfortable with saying, hey, coach, it's 110 degrees here today. Maybe we should practice at 8 p.m. tonight, or maybe we should cancel practice today. Or, hey, that athlete is not handling this drill. They keep falling down. Maybe we should pull them out and evaluate them rather than continuing to pick them up and push them through the drill. Um, you know, changing a venue, you know, we require or that it's required that places have emergency action plans that are venue specific, things like if there's an emergency, how does the ambulance get in and how does the ambulance get out? Where do you direct people to? So you can see that a last minute change of venue would make it more difficult for you to direct, you know, first aid personnel in if you had to. Um, having a workout like that start before medical personnel arrived is just not, not good practice unless 
everybody that's there, the supervising adults are certified in emergency response. And so again, are they aware of the emergency action plan? Are they uh, CPR certified? Things like things like that. But I think, you know, Jordan McNair, unfortunately, was a cascade of errors that led to a death. Um, I'm really pleased that, you know, his family has put together a foundation in his name that is really continuing to work um, to promote heat uh, illness, education, awareness. Um, they have clinics, they do all sorts of outreach. And so, um, you know, that Jordan hadn't passed in vain that perhaps the next, you know, athlete, you know, death can be avoided because of, of that. And so, I think it's it's unfortunate, but again, as Angie said, had the athletic trainers felt that they get the autonomous ability to stop a practice without fear of retribution, had the best practices been been in place, you know, this was another one of those deaths that could have been prevented. It's it was tragic, and as you said, there's been 33 of them in the last 21 years, and that's really unexplainable at the at this level. Um, before we move on to the empowerment of the uh, the medical team on site, Angie, you mentioned about uh, going to visit some campuses and seeing that they are just way off. One of the what are some of the things that your notice is and tells you that they just don't get it? Um, I would say it's really the investment of athletic directors at times. They they have a lot on their plate. There's a lot going on. The NCAA is completely transforming. Um, NIL and, and all of those good things. And, and again, when you look at it, it's, it's hard to imagine there could be health and safety concerns with healthy, relatively healthy 18 to 22 year olds. So I think, I think we're a little more conscientious to it because we know what can happen when it, when it happens, how bad it can go. And sometimes there's just a um, kind of lack of awareness of just where the risk is. Um, things that we see sometimes that you get concerned about is whether or not they're requiring their, their coaches to do CPR certification, because that's a basic um, thing that every citizen should know how to do. Even if there's an athletic trainer there, um, the coach may have to assist because the athletic trainer gets tired before an EMS gets there. So are there little things like that that you are doing that are promoting a health and safety culture? Um, are there emergency action plans posted? Is this a priority to you and your group and your athletic department? Is the entire athletic department focused on health and safety for the student athlete, or are you just putting that all in your medical staff? Because it has to be a culture within your department versus just a responsibility of, of a few individuals. And I think when you don't have that, that can be of concern because that means you're cutting corners in all these areas that have to do with health and safety, whether it's the number of staff that you hire, the retention through salaries, um, whether it's you know enabling them to do some continuing ed through best practices, you want a group that that stays as the focus um, for the safety of the student athlete. Chad, what would you like to add? I think uh, one of the easy things for a, a president or a trustee to do is to um, travel down to their you know sports medicine area, their athletic medicine area, and ask to see the policies and procedure manual. I think a, a an institution that gets it will have a comprehensive, uh, up to date policy and procedure manual that outlines you know, many of the things that uh, may be expected. The NCAA through their best practice guidance recommends upwards of 45 to 50 different policies. And so if you're headed down to athletics and the binder is pretty narrow and there's only a couple policies in there, 
well, then you probably need to think that, well, maybe they haven't really thought through a lot of these, you know, hopefully not eventualities, but hopeful, you know, these potential um, incidents, you know, do they have a, a, a heat illness policy? Do they have a cardiac screening policy, a concussion protocol policy, how to transport an athlete, chaperone policy, or just, you know, one of many policies that should be in place. But that's an easy way for someone external to an athletics department to just get a sense of, is, is there a, you know, a culture of safety within your medical personnel? Now, that being said, just having policies and procedures, if the culture from the athletic director down is not one of health and safety, then, you know, that's, even if you have the, the policies and procedures in place, you've got to be able to implement them. And people need to have reviewed the policies and be aware of what's in the policies. But I, I think from a president trustee standpoint, that's one pretty easy way to see, you know, does my department kind of get it? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. <clears throat> Angie, I want to direct this one to you because you've been a, a head athletic trainer over 36 sports. Is that is that right? Do I have that number right? Yep. 36 sports at a Big Ten institution. Uh, and, and a lot of your 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 website and some of the things that you all shared with me, it, you talk about having a healthcare model for each team. So in a in a program with thirty six sports, how commonplace is it for each varsity sport program to have a healthcare model, or is it more likely that there's different healthcare models because of the emphasis of the sport? Uh, and why should senior leaders be aware of this? Well, I think every athlete has to have the same level of care, regardless of what sport they're in. And I think sometimes um, some institutions do it really well. I, I was fortunate I was at an institution that everybody got the same care, whether you were a football athlete or track athlete or field hockey or volleyball. Um, I think it's really important that no care is being tiered. And that's really hard to do sometimes if you are employed just by an athletic department versus being overseen by somebody outside the athletic department. So if you're being seen and you have a reporting structure to some system outside the athletic department, meaning that your athletic director can't hire and fire the medical staff, that medical staff can look um, critically at all the needs within that athletic department and decide how to meet all those needs with the personnel that they have in place. And it's based on high risk, it's based on best practices versus an athletic department model, sometimes they can have the focus on a higher profile sport, a revenue generating sport, something that's seen on TV versus another athlete. So I think people can get themselves in a lot of trouble if they're not having equity across the board, because you don't want to, you wouldn't want to go to a physician's office and be tiered based on your tenured status. Um, you don't want somebody to decide, well, you're from this part of Philadelphia, so you can't have this. Like, you want to make sure that you're getting equal access. And that's a challenge that I think is, is really important for all of our student athletes, for sure. I agree about that. Chad, you shared with me your uh, inter-association recommendations, preventing catastrophic injury and death in collegiate athletics. That's a mouthful, but I'd like you to at least provide an overview of this. And if you could talk about why these became, went from recommendations to requirements in 2020 in both the NCAA and the NAIA. So the inter-association um, recommendations came about in 2019 
as a result of some of the things that were going on um, in college athletics, um, these recommendations uh, were put in place to, to ensure that uh, sportsmanship, equipment, uh, medical reporting, as Angie had just kind of mentioned, um, that education of athletes, coaches, uh, athletic administrators, and medical personnel, that emergency action plans were in place, and specifically that there was guidance around the strength and conditioning realm, um, because that seems to be, you know, for, a, for the majority of where a lot of these deaths or significant injuries had been happening. And so those guidelines were endorsed by 13 major medical organizations. They were published in the medical and the legal literature, and they have, are seen as, as really the best practices, the guidelines of how to provide safe, you know, college athletics on your campus. Um, initially, they came out as recommendations. In 2020, and then again in 2022, um, the NCAA and their concussion management protocol document stated that member institutions must comply with the inner association recommendations. And so there is still what I would call sort of a culture of non-compliance in athletics where athletic directors think, well, we don't need to follow those because Alabama doesn't do that or Michigan's not doing that. And I think that when athletic directors do that, so they automatically look at those health and safety guidelines as barriers to being competitive when really they're safeguard <clears throat> safeguards for athletes. Um, you know, schools that do it right can still be competitive while safeguarding their athletes. We are not advocating that anybody takes away from that, but they're, they're, they're different. You can be, you can have a culture of health and safety and be competitive. Promoting health and safety doesn't make you less competitive. And so some of the things that those um, guidelines really put out that were different or changes is that they require annual training for coaches, athletes, administrators, and medical personnel around 12 health and safety topics. They require you to have emergency action plans uh, for uh, 11 different medical conditions that are venue specific, and they require that people have reviewed those emergency action plans and that the, the emergency action plans are re rehearsed um, annually. They also stated that a strength and conditioning coach could not report to a head uh, coach. They had to report to someone in the sports medicine line or somebody in the athletic administration line. And for a lot of times that, that head strength coach was viewed as sort of the disciplinarian for the head football coach. And a lot of these deaths and serious injuries that we talked about happened in these punishment workouts that were just, that were handed out by these strength and conditioning coaches. Um, last, they sort of detailed what sort of certifications that strength and conditioning coaches must have in order to practice in the college environment. Um, and so those are really probably the most significant best practices that are out there. The NCAA does have five other documents on cardiac care, mental health, diversity, equity, and inclusion, racism in sport, and a best practice guideline around mental health and um, independent medical care. And so those are sort of the guidelines that the NCA has put out for institutions. 
but I think it's really important for um, presidents, trustee, high-level administrators to be aware of that document, to at least have looked at it and gone through and thought through in our in your head, are we doing this on campus? You know, most everything in that that guidance, that document can be done for zero cost. You're not going to in, in, incur you know, huge amounts of uh, expenditure to make sure that you've got education, policies and procedures and all of that in place. And so it's really a low cost, no cost intervention to protect the athlete and the university. Karen, I would add to that. I think sometimes the assumption from college presidents is that this is all being managed by the NCAA. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to health and safety, these aren't really enforceable rules. They're guidelines that are put in place that then if there's an issue, there's definitely a legal repercussion um, from a lawsuit perspective, but there's not an NCAA enforcement group that's coming in to see if you are following the rules or not. There's really not a reporting structure um, for student athletes who feel like they might be put in an unsafe situation. So it's really one of those things that as a president, you need to get into the weeds of it, not just talk to the athletic director, but talk to the people that are the boots on the ground that are working with the athletes to see where the deficiencies are. And I often liken it to this. If you are a president and you go in and you observe a class in physics and that professor comes in and they don't have a, a, a practice, they don't have a plan for the day of what they're gonna teach. They don't have a syllabus. They're not using the best evidence to support their arguments in a day. You wouldn't want that person to be teaching on your campus. But oftentimes in athletics, you may have coaches or strength coaches that have no idea what they're doing for practice today. They haven't thought through it. A strength coach who's not using the best evidence-based practice that's out there, they're still following a model of what maybe you've had 20, 30, 40 years ago. So ultimately coaches are teachers on your campus. So are they following kind of that structure of how to educate um, or are they kind of going off on their own little model? And I think that that's an important thing for um, presidents who might be in, intimidated by how to even start this process um, can look at it and, and dial it down a little bit further that, that this is just not an area the NCAA um, gets involved in. One I think, thing, well, go ahead, Chad. One thing I would add to that is in this transformation of the NCAA's constitution, you know, they're putting a lot of the emphasis back on the conference and the institution to maintain an environment or a culture of health and safety, health and wellness on the campus. And so now the onus is being shifted from the NCAA, although they never enforced or regulated it, back to institutions to, to, to be in charge. And so it's even more important that presidents are aware of what are, what are the best practices and are they being followed? You know, you both bring up great points. I'm glad you mentioned about the transformation efforts that are going on on the divisions. I do, I too agree that there'll be more pressure put on the conferences and the individual institutions, which puts more pressure on the senior leaders to know what's going on. But I also think even if a trustee or a president doesn't have the time inclination to walk down to the medical facilities, they could at least put these items on their agenda with their meeting with their athletic director. Tell me, tell me what's going on in this area. If we had an issue, how would we respond? Just even asking the questions shows, I think that you, are, you have an awareness and a sensitivity to the athlete's health and wellness. So agreed. And I think maybe even empowering your faculty rep a little bit more because yeah. you do have an outside person on campus 
Yes. Um, you know, is that person feel the, they have resources on campus that they can get to quicker than maybe an athletic department person. So really empowering that person a little bit more to report to you as your eyes and ears on the ground of what's really happening in that department. And in fact, in the new constitution, there actually is a directive that the FAR have their ear to the ground more about some of the issues that athletes are facing Correct. and they don't feel like they're that are being addressed. So, so great point. Correct. I want to shift a little bit to get look back on your own experiences. Both of you have worked in high profile, high pressure environments and situations. Give us a sense of what day-to-day -day life is like working in the Big Ten as a healthcare professional. Chad, why don't you start us off? You know, my uh, my day-to-day -day will be a little different than Angie's was as I was, you know, a practicing sports medicine physician in the clinic most of the time um, would spend uh you know, two to three half days a week in training room where I would see athletes and then would have event coverage. But um, college athletics is a 24 7, 365 uh, grind. And so there wasn't a day that if I was in Columbus, Ohio, I didn't go to campus to see an athlete for something. Um, and so I think that there is one of the things that's hard is that the environment that not just medical people, but administrators, coaches are operating in is this, you know, constant 24-7, 365 environment where everything's an emergency. Um, and it really is a, is a challenge to kind of maintain that pace without really any, you know, ebbs and flows. You know, I was, um, the way they did it at Ohio State was they assigned physicians to training rooms. And so I had eight eight or so teams that I cared for. And, you know, normally if you were taking care of say volleyball in the fall, well in spring, they're not that busy. They practice, but they're not that busy. But when you have other sports that are going on and as a medical provider, you don't ever really get a, a break because your sports are always on, um, that can be a challenge. But I think the higher you go um, in the level of, of athletics, and the money that's now involved with some of these decisions and the pressure that gets placed on you to hold somebody out or to return them to play, um, I think that is a big challenge to seasoned you know, sports medicine providers, but certainly a challenge to, to, to new or junior sports medicine providers that they really have to stand their ground and do what's best for the athlete without you know, giving in to external influence. And sometimes that's hard when you think about an Ohio State football player. They may be playing Michigan coming up or the Big Ten championship or the national championship. And you have to not allow that external pressure to sort of dictate what you do. You have to do still what's the right thing for the athlete. And let me just add one thing, and before you jump in. It's, it would behoove presidents and trustees not to put additional pressure on medical staff to ask about the, the, the progress or the potential for an athlete returning to a game, because that really, I think, sets up a dynamic that is unfair. Completely Angela. agree. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think that, um, you know, the role of, of sports medicine professionals in athletics has drastically changed over the last three decades. I, I always likened it to two things. Number one, um, coaches no longer teach on a campus for the most part. They're just focused on their sport. So that leaves you 12 months a year that you can just focus on your particular sport. Um, and the invention of cell phones. I mean, those two things alone, I think have changed things drastically. So the, the 
patient that comes in, the 18 to 22 year old is generally there for 12 months a year now. Um, every team will work out all year round. And their expectation for concierge care, that 24 seven, I can get a hold of anybody, um, is real. And it could be at 10 o'clock at night that I'm away from home and I've had a fever for the first time and I just have a simple cold and I don't know how to manage that, but I've got somebody's cell phone number, so I'll call. Um, or it could be you know, something really serious. But yeah, I think it's just that, that managing um, the expectation is, is you are at a large institution like that. And it's even trickling down to the smaller schools now is that there's 24 seven access to healthcare. And, and that's not realistic um, when it comes to the real world. Um, you don't have the same doctor every time you walk into the emergency room, you have different physicians. I think that health and safety is so complicated that a lot of health and safety initiatives are pushed on athletic trainers. So in many scenarios, everything dealing with COVID went to the athletic trainer. They were managing testing. They were managing symptoms. There are many campuses that use the athletic trainer to help get the whole campus on um, and functioning throughout the pandemic. So I think that because of that, there's been a lot of job creep, a lot of additional um, responsibilities that when you see an athletic trainer on a field, it's normally during a competition or it's during a practice and that's the latest portion of their day. That's the day that they get to, the moment they get to breathe for an hour or two and hope that nothing happens. But everything leading up to that point um, tends to be a pretty hectic chaotic. And then you add in the risk management factors of things that you need to follow, the documentation that wasn't there previously, um, the parental involvement that hadn't always been there that now, you know, they want updates on a regular basis. So I think there's just a tremendous amount of stress on, on those individuals that are trying to provide healthcare in that environment for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So great, great segue into where are we as an industry with recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals at all levels? And what should senior leaders know about the impact of the lengthening seasons, the 12 months a year, and overlapping seasons, and the growing squad sizes, which I've noticed recently in Division One? Chad, I'll let you start with that. Well, I think we're definitely seeing a shortage of healthcare professionals across the board. I think COVID was really one of those things that highlighted sort of inefficiencies in the system. Um, and then a lot of people were overworked and just decided that it's not worth it anymore. And so from physicians to nurses to athletic trainers within the healthcare setting, I apologize for my puppies, but <laughs> try to keep them there. But, okay, yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. But there's been a shortage across the board. And so that's certainly affecting athletic departments. You know, we just had a, a webinar this morning with a conference about their athletic training shortage. Um, and I think that we have to look differently at the way we're providing athletic medicine. As Angie always likes to say, we don't recruit like we did 20 years ago. We don't communicate. We don't fundraise like we did 20 years ago but we're still trying to provide athletic medicine like we did 20 years ago. And a lot of things have changed. And so just because we did something that way for all these years, I think we really need to look at it differently. And I think the most important thing is making sure that you minimize the risk on your campus by utilizing your healthcare professionals in the best, in the best way. Ange, you wanna wrap it up for us? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it takes upper leadership to look at things and how could we do it differently. And I think that's the stage we're at right now, just because of the amount of personnel that we may have at a particular institution, uh, because of the risk management things that are out there, the policies, the guidelines, all of that. 
who's making decisions on what best practices is, is from a sports medicine professional. Obviously, we do that as a third party entity. Um, but are there people on your campus? Are there coaches making those decisions? Are, are there um, individuals that have experience in healthcare making those decisions? Um, is it administrative decision? Who's making those decisions and who are the best people to make those decisions? I think it's really important for people to peel back of why are you doing what you're doing? And a lot of times they'll be like, I don't know. That's how we've done it the last 10 years or the last 15 years. So really analyzing everything that's happening. So you can determine where your potential risk is. Um, and ultimately, everybody wants to do what's best for our students, our student athletes. And I think just looking at it from a critical eye is really key right now. Well, I'll tell you, you both have provided a wealth of information that I'm, I'm hopeful that senior campus leaders will begin to digest. I think they may have to uh, listen a couple of times just to make sure they got everything. But um, this is a critical component of an athletic department is the health and safety of athletes and the people who take care of them. So I'm glad we could bring some attention to this. Very grateful for your both, both of your time and your, your contributions in this area because they've been extensive. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. And great.